This is Randall Goodfellow. Well, my name is Mike Nickerson. So my name is Glenn Campbell. Yes, my name is uh, Stuart McIsaac. These are Further Reflections. These are Further Reflections. And these are Further Reflections. Welcome to episode 26 of Further Reflections, Year One. This is being released on November 11th, 2018. And uh, in this episode, it's a recap of the first year of Further Reflections. It's been almost exactly one year since I published the first episode of Further Reflections. I published it on, I'm looking back, and I published it on November 12th, 2017. So it really has been a year. This is episode 26, as I said. So that means uh, there's been at least 25 uh, proper episodes, many interviews, also some solo shows. It's uh, nice to celebrate this uh, anniversary. I wasn't sure how the podcast was going to evolve, but uh, I knew I would do things differently than my previous podcast, uh, Reflections On. In the previous podcast, it was a lot of recorded lectures towards the end with some interviews. And I think the quality wasn't that great overall, even though I did the podcast for two and a half years. You can find more about that podcast at furtherreflections.net, as well as the episode archive of this podcast. Um, but uh, I think we'll just take this episode to uh, look back on some of the highlights of the first year, some of the themes. Uh, in this new podcast, I've done quite a few uh, solo shows. I've talked about the movies. I've talked about some books, especially the books of Paolo Coelho. We've talked about travel and other things. I've also interviewed a, uh, quite a number of people. So what we'll do is we'll start the podcast. Because this podcast is based on Ottawa, Canada, one of the episodes was collecting stories about what people like, dislike, and would change about Ottawa. And this was called Voices on Ottawa. And I'm going to share three of those voices with you right now. Those are the voices of Jim Birch, um, Mike Nickerson, and Christopher Kelly Bisson. Uh, I took this from the podcast where I do introduce them, so I won't say too much about who they are. But uh, I collected these stories, and uh, in some way it was, it was good. We could hear sort of positive things, but I kind of wish people had been a little more critical of kind of Ottawa's sprawling nature and suburban development. But I do want to highlight some of these speakers. 
So let's take a minute to hear what these three uh, individuals have to say about the city of Ottawa. Next up is Jim Birch. Jim is the founder of the organization, the Ottawa Biosphere EcoCity, which is aiming to make uh, Ottawa especially more sustainable through uh, different themes of sustainability, but also through demonstration projects, sustainability plans, and so on. It's an organization that wants to get everybody involved in sustainability, even on a small level, and they believe that's possible. The Just uh, Google um, Ottawa Biosphere EcoCity, because their website's a little uh, difficult to uh, say here. So uh, Jim has lived in Ottawa quite a long time, probably most of his life, I think. And uh, let's hear what Jim has to say about this city. Sure. Uh, Jim Birch. I, I live in Canada. I I like the the people in Ottawa because they have a lot of interests and they seem to care about where they live um, and the the, the the city does too. There's good people in the city, so we have we have nice avenues and we have water and parks and that kind of thing. So it's a pleasant place to live, and I walk a lot, so that's good to have. Uh, an environment with with trees and and nature around. Uh, I don't like drivers in Ottawa. I don't like how driving has become. Uh, roads roads seem sometimes like race tracks with expensive cars zipping in and out and people tailgating. And uh, as I go on my walks, I've had a few times to jump out of the way as I'm crossing a street because somebody comes along and they they don't feel like stopping at the stop sign. And I haven't been hit yet, but it worries me. Um, my wife got uh, hit in her car with a, a van who was doing probably two and a half times the speed limit a few months back, and she's very nervous now. So I wish the police in the city would find a way to enforce good driving in this town and let us pedestrians and other people survive, and, and other, other drivers. Ah, that's kind of negative. What can I say that's positive? Uh, I I like the climate in Ottawa. I like having four seasons. And uh, even though we've had sometimes hard winters or disappointing summers for some people, I, I've been able to find almost every day some part of the day that is really nice. So, um, you know, I, I don't think I could find that if I was living in a place that was uh, 45 degrees for six months or a place or even up in the North Pole. It would be too cold or too hot for me. I like the changes. Now we'll hear from Christopher Kelly Bisson. Chris is interested in many things, social justice, permaculture. He's interested in agroecology. He's interested in politics, and he's actually a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa studying politics. Chris has, I believe, lived in Ottawa for quite a number of years now, and uh, Chris will give his opinion on this city. Hi, this is uh, Christopher Kelly Bisson, and what I love about living in Ottawa is, well, first and foremost, it's my home, so I have lots of memories and fond attachments to the place. But also, it's a it's a beautiful city, uh, naturally and physically. Um, whether it's the uh, canal 
uh, and the, the green spaces around that or the, the, the Gatineau Hills and the, the Erdly Escarpment that you can see right from downtown, uh, lots of green space and the communities throughout. Uh, there's a lot of really good people in this place doing lots of good things. So uh, I love Ottawa. Anything, say something you dislike about it or in general? Uh, something I dislike about Ottawa is certainly the nightlife could be better. Um, but that's, it's no mystery there. Uh, I think transit could be better a little bit. And uh, people drive terribly in this city. People are the worst drivers. Maybe not as bad as Montreal, but they're getting almost there. And the last word on this goes to Mike Nickerson. Mike is the person behind the website sustainwellbeing.net. He talks a lot about sustainability and how we can uh, live in a more, I don't know, um, a different world that's less reliant on fossil fuels. And he's written a book called Life, Money, and Illusion, Living on Earth as if we want to stay. Mike has appeared numerous times on, well, he's appeared once on this podcast, but he's also appeared on my previous podcast several times. That's Reflections On. That podcast can be found at furtherreflections.net and just click on the Reflections On banner. And definitely check out Mike's website to learn more about him. He's also, also Mike's also the man behind the Lanark Eco Village, and he lives in Lanark, Ontario, which is probably I don't know, maybe forty-five minute drive from Ottawa, maybe an hour. Um, but Mike lived in Ottawa, I believe, in the eighties, and he comes into Ottawa regularly for events. And Mike's a very um, well-spoken person uh, with a wealth of knowledge. So let's hear from Mike Nickerson on the city of Ottawa. I just, I just, you know, think back because I did live in Ottawa for ten years. It ended in 1980, so that's a while back. But it hasn't changed in terms of the bike paths and and the ability to go up and down the river and the canal, the rivers and the canal, and you know, get around like that. I, I just found that wonderful because I was able to, you know, lead my life without driving everywhere, which is not so much the case when you're out in the far country. I then moved to Merrickville, which you could walk across and, and get to everything you needed. But, but uh, you know, as cities go, Ottawa's, uh, Ottawa's quite, a, quite a neat place, and it's, it is getting bigger and bigger. I, I, when I do go into town, which isn't that often, I'm just floored by the amount of traffic that's happening on the, the Queensway going into town and all over the place, because the internal combustion engine is is dated, and and you know you've got to move a ton of iron around, even if you electrify it. I I don't know how people imagined that they could replace the fossil fuel cars with electric cars, and and where they would get enough electricity to power all that. You know, find a way to support yourself without having to travel great distances. There's a lot of lot of unnecessary travel that we do just because we can. You know, and people will live an hour away from where they work, and that's. Uh, that's ludicrous. You know, imagine going there, uh, you know, by, by your own, you know, pedal power or walking or whatever, and you'd pretty quick start thinking about living closer to work. Since about 2011 or so, one of my interests has been shamanism. Uh, at first, this was sparked by a trip to Peru where I was exposed to uh, more uh, plant-based uh, shamanism, I guess you could say. But then when I came back to Canada in 2012, I was interested in something called core shamanism, which I did a workshop which was hosted by Glenn Campbell. And on this podcast, uh, even before the, 
you know, with my previous podcast, I towards the end in 2013, I been more interested in talking about shamanism, and I interviewed uh, Mark Daniel, who's kind of a sound uh, shaman, I guess he described himself as, and he's been on this podcast, as well as Tim Yerington, who's more of an Algonquin knowledge keeper, but he does refer to himself as a shaman these days. But I want to highlight the episode with Glenn Campbell. In 2013, I did the workshop, The Way of the Shaman, with uh, Glenn, and we reconnected recently. And I interviewed him for the podcast. I thought it would be fun. He does workshops for Shaman Spirit Path uh, under the uh, Foundation for Shamanic Studies. And so Glenn will just talk a little bit about what they're all about, a little bit about how he was attracted to shamanism. And uh, hopefully that gives you some overview. They do courses regularly in Ottawa in case uh, someone's interested in working with Glenn. So let's hear uh, Glenn Campbell for a few minutes on shamanism. Uh, it's about 15 or so years ago and more, I started to be interested in shamanism and began exploring that, finding out what that was about. Uh, here I am today uh, teaching for the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and I have a shamanic practice where I do shamanic healings and uh, divination or giving people information, finding information for them uh, in a practice that I run out of my home. So not much of a retirement because I'm busy, but this is delightful work. I enjoy it and uh, people seem to get benefit from it as well. So that's a very brief outline of uh, shamanism is something uh, in addition to that. This shamanism is working with the helping spirits, these loving, compassionate helping spirits and uh, working with them, learning from them, helping others with the, with the power that were given by these helping spirits. So, yeah, they're different practices. <laughs> Do you see shaman, shamanism as being a bit like meditation was back in the 60s or something? Like, Well, as far as that goes, as far as the newness of it, although shamanism is very fashionable today, uh, Michael Harner in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, with his first book, The Way of the Shaman, kind of brought these methods to the attention of the of the world. You know, there was very little done as, as far as public understanding of what shamanism was. Up to that time, it was an academic pursuit of anthropologists exploring different uh, communities throughout the world and their customs and such. And, and Harner began to see in his research, out in field research with shamanic communities, he began to see some similarities in, in what they were doing in the kinds of healing practices and the kind of uh, uh, seeking information from the world around that the, that the shamanic peoples do. And he saw these similar kinds of practices and uh, kind of universal practices, although they were different because of the different cultures throughout the world, but the practices were themselves very, very similar. So he called them core shamanism or universal practices. And that's basically what the, the foundation is about, um, supporting shamans in the world as they are now, and then teaching these universal practices to, uh, to interested folk. And that's what I do now. I teach uh, weekend workshops for the foundation and teach these kind of universal methods. So I was fine um, with my experiences. This is all 
things that we experience. It's not something you believe or something you you uh, you go for a lecture series and take notes on as far as intellectual understanding. There is some understanding, of course, but this is all based on experience. So, so I just dove in with with these, and then the, the foundation was offering weekend workshops. So, I started taking them, and uh, learned more and more, and uh, I was having fun. I liked this stuff. It was fun to do, connecting with helping spirits. Who wouldn't want to do that? Did you ever meet Michael Harner or anything like that? Oh yeah, many times. Yeah, many times. I've I've worked with him. Um, I've done courses with him, um, so I've been trained directly by him, and yeah, so I, I know him, he knows me, <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's uh, in his late 80s right now, so he's, he's mm-hmm. still as sharp as a tack, and, and he's basically, he's, he's kind of withdrawn from the administrative duties of running the, his foundation, other people are running it, because it's a charitable organization, and he... Uh, He's he's in the background doing research still, so uh, no, he's 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 quite a quite a character, very knowledgeable, very humble. This uh, foundation for shamanic studies is not about Michael Harner; it's about shamanism. He's very very clear about that. This is not about personalities or or cult following or anything like that. Um, he wants people to to dive into shamanic practice and see for themselves. You know. The, the scientific approach, if you will. I've done several reviews, including movies, but also books, and I want to take a moment here to acknowledge the episode, The Books of Paulo Coelho. I had read uh, six books of Paulo Coelho since the beginning of 2018, which was quite an achievement because I had had trouble concentrating for a number of years, trouble reading, although I grew up, I was a very voracious reader, and I would love uh, especially science fiction novels. But since this year, I've been reading quite regularly again. I read six yeah, Paulo Coelho books. There's an episode on those in the archive. Um, I'm going to highlight a five-minute review, maybe four or five-minute review here, of the book Brida, just to give a little taste of what that episode was about. Brida is about a young Irish girl and her quest for... Meaning, I guess you could say, she works with two different teachers who kind of uh, have different methods. One is more an urban, um, kind of called Wicca, and she's more of an urban uh, witch. And then she works with a Magus who's living in more of a forested area and a little more esoteric maybe. And she, it's her tutelage with these two people, and they actually maybe knew each other. So uh, Brida was an interesting fable. It's reminiscent a bit of The Alchemist. It's one of his maybe lighter books. It's not too heavy. It's, it's nice. And um, let's hear a little more about Brida. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the book uh, Brida by Paolo Coelho, which I finished uh, just the other night. And this is the fourth book of Paolo Coelho's I've read in the last several months. And uh, I might be, in a way, one of the more simpler books uh, of his. There's not too many characters in the book. It follows the story of a, an Irish girl named Brida, who is kind of, uh, I don't know, she's got something called the gift. She's drawn towards more kind of esoteric uh, magic practices. And she's kind of been looking for a teacher in a way, or... Maybe not directly, but 
she ends up working with this teacher called the Magus who lives in a forest uh, within a bus distance of uh, Dublin, Ireland, which is where she lives. And the Magus is practicing something called the tradition of the sun. And basically he initiates her sort of uh, in this tradition and taught, teaches her about uh, one of the main themes is teaching her about soulmates. And he believes that she is his soulmate and she will see that of him as well, although she doesn't really see it at the time, although this kind of progresses in the book. But she also works with another teacher who's an urban, a more urban, uh, a witch, I guess you could say, named Wicca, which is, goes by the name Wicca. And she's based in Dublin. And she's more of a, the, the Magus is more of this hermit type of, uh, a little bit shies away from the world, kind of um, mystical person. And the, the Wicca is more of, um, yeah, an urban, urban witch, I guess you could say. Although there's parts where she initiates them in a more forest or clearing a rural environment. But uh, there's a different contrast there. And the witch is more interested maybe in worldly things. And uh, there's this idea that she drives this fancy car and maybe she it's unexpected because you don't associate that with someone like that. But it's, I guess there may be a message about not... Uh, not judging people by preconceived uh, notions. And uh, so it's a very, there's basically, those are the, basically the three characters and they intersect. And in the Magus and Wicca even knew each other before and maybe had this affair, although it's not the focus of the book. But she's kind of learning from both traditions and the Wicca is teaching her the uh, tradition of the moon. So they go, tradition of the sun and moon kind of go together and she's if not torn between them both she's sort of studying with them both and and it kind of culminates in this initiation ceremony but she's also got this boyfriend and you know it sort of plays out whether uh, she's really in love with the boyfriend or whether she might end up with the magus or how that works and it's talking about uh, sex as a kind of initiation in a way and that um, if you connect to your sexual energy, you can connect to the divine. There's a whole plot of that. It's a very simple story. There's, there, it is from the perspective of Brita, but with her relationship with each of these two teachers, uh, maybe it's not so, I don't want to say deep, but it seems very, um, doesn't seem anything especially novel or new to me. It's, uh, it's a different kind of novel. It's probably closer to The Alchemist than some of the other ones I read in terms of like, it's just this little fable. It's maybe unassuming. And Brita might be a bit reminiscent of the character from Santiago from The Al Alchemist who's kind of searching for something, you know, for his destiny kind of thing. So, I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting character. It's It's kind of an interesting story. Um, yeah, a lot of his books are translated from the original language, which is Portuguese, because he's Brazilian. So this makes it interesting when you think about that, because I like his style, but at the same time, it's it's a translation. It's you know, I haven't read. I don't think any of the books were originally written in English. 
and but they of course that works with a lot of books but just gives me pause so that's a little bit about uh, Brida by Paulo Coelho since 2016 I've been interested in something called authentic relating games and I found out about that through I think meetup.com or maybe Facebook I think it maybe was Facebook because I had some mutual friends that were members of uh, Authentic Relating Ottawa's Facebook page. So I started going in 2016 and I've been going ever since. I found it very helpful, especially probably around 2017, which was, there was some, uh, you know, it's kind of an intense year for me to some degree. I was going regularly. They would, right now they hold them twice a month sometimes, but at uh, the beginning they were only once a month. But I was going almost every month. And it's a way of connecting with people beyond the ordinary. And I interviewed a couple people on this subject, but uh, Pamela French I've got to know well. Pamela is the co-founder of Authentic Relating Ottawa, although these days she's pretty much the main person that uh, leads these games. And maybe we'll get Pamela back on the podcast in the new year because she's got some interesting projects going on and Authentic Relating Ottawa is always evolving. So let's talk, let's uh, listen to Pamela talking about Authentic Relating Ottawa and what that's all about and Authentic Relating Games and then we'll check back in. So here's Pamela French. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what I can share is that one of my core values is play. And so what I do usually is playing or feels playful to me. So I co-founded Authentic Relating Ottawa with my friend Carmen three and a half years ago, and we've been organizing authentic relating games nights um, and other events and workshops here in the Ottawa area for three and a half years now. And it's been fabulous um, creating conversations and connections and ways of being with one another. And it's been a lot of fun. Sure. Um, So authentic relating games was born out of communities like Boulder, Colorado, and San Francisco and Berkeley. And uh, basically is structured activities, but coming from a perspective of playfulness and non-judgment, and there is no right or wrong way to play. There's just playing the game. So it's communication skills that we're developing and exercising um, and expanding upon in terms of how to connect Um, in conversation with one another uh, at a very vulnerable, genuine, uh, truth-based level that allows us to really feel like we're seeing the other person for who they are in the moment and that we're allowing other people to see us as we are in the moment. So games could be anything from, you know, not using words and silently looking into somebody else's eyes and just noticing um, all that gets communicated without words uh, in the moment. Games could also be games of curiosity, um, structured in such a way that one person is asking the other person questions for a period of time, a few minutes, and then uh, the person who is being asked questions has two minutes straight to give feedback on the questions. Were the questions exciting to them? Were they things they wanted to answer? Was there a topic they wanted their partner to dive deeper into. Um, So really teaching other people how to get to know us better and uh, conversely allowing someone to direct us to talk about what's really most exciting and interesting for them. 
So really getting away from the you know, traditional conversations about where do you work and where do you live and what are your hobbies and delving into more feeling-based conversations. Um. Yeah. So I became aware of authentic relating games through my friend Carmen, who had experienced them at a retreat in Boulder, Colorado at the Integral Center. And she saw the playful nature in which these really rewarding conversations were taking place. And she thought of me immediately because her and I have shared many rewarding and playful conversations and she knows how much I love play. Uh, And so we did some research and there's, you know, an authentic relating games manual and communities around the world. And we reached out to uh, Sarah Ness, who was one of the main drivers behind the authentic revolution uh, and, and joining communities around the world to grow and learn together. And uh, she helped us set up what it would look like to have authentic relating on a regular basis here in Ottawa. Uh, and so we, you know, we took the plunge. We set up a meetup uh, for our backyard and asked people to bring chairs and prayed that it wouldn't rain. And 17 people showed up on that first July night, uh, three and a half years ago, and only two of them were our friends, and 15 were strangers. And it was probably one of the most exhilarating evenings um, of my recent memory, just because of how nervous I was, and yet how right everything felt, um, being there and doing what I was doing. And we grew from that 17 people to um, over a thousand people connected to us on Meetup nowadays. And we're also on Facebook, uh, carrying conversations on there. And uh, yeah, we went from hosting three hour games nights once a month to trying out a bunch of different activities and ideas, some weekend retreats and branching out into a practice called circling, which I um, really feel is going to be super beneficial for the future of uh, workforces here in Ottawa as well. I'm really excited about circling. It's uh, one particular way of speaking and being and listening in uh, a conversation with one or more people in physically sitting in a circle usually And the intention behind uh, sharing truth and togetherness inside of the circling language is usually what helps people really understand one another's points of view, which then really opens up the gates for uh, achieving consensus on outcomes, which is why I think it'll be so valuable in the workplaces. And so the community that has developed uh, as a result of us hosting that first Authentic Relating Games Night has been phenomenal to watch. Um, We're very clear that our events are designed for fun and play. They're not dating events. However, when you engage in these types of really connecting conversations, there is this like rush that comes and the friendships that have come out of this and the people who now, you know, travel together. And there's, there have been relationships as a result of people meeting at authentic relating games nights and 
other events and communities have been started as a result. And I've seen people's lives change in, in, in terms of, you know, owning a business and uh, working 70 hours a week to realizing that what they really wanted to do was sell it all and rent a motorhome and drive around the United States for a few months and just see where life takes them. And seeing this level of um, empowerment and freedom and clarity for people too, and how it has really shifted um, their lives and their connections with the loved ones that are already in their lives. Um, even if they don't come out to an authentic relating game site, it's not for everybody. I totally get that. But those who do come tend to resonate with it deeply. Throughout the podcast, I've done a couple of solo shows. I, I like doing these solo shows because people wanted to hear more of my voice when I did the previous podcast. So I started talking about something that's of interest to me, which is the movies. And at first I was actually asking people uh, at the end of the interview uh, to talk about a movie or two that have influenced them. But that didn't always turn out so well. I think people were put on the spot. And maybe not everyone's a cinephile like myself. But I do uh, have a couple of examples of that I'm going to play on the, this uh, retrospective episode. Corey Rabbi of Radical Health and Randall Goodfellow of Faith in the Common Good. Randall is actually the first person I interviewed for this podcast. They're going to talk about some movies that are influ have influenced them, um, among them The Way and the movie The Midwife, which is a French movie from 2017. And I'm going to give her a review that uh, I did of the movie On Chesil Beach, not because it's my favorite movie of the last few years, but because I kind of put it in a separate podcast, and maybe people haven't heard it. It was separate from the podcasts I've done. I've done two podcasts on the movies, uh, specifically movies that have influenced me within a certain time period. And um, this one was in a separate podcast, so people might not have heard my review. It's only about a four-minute review or so. Um, the movie Chesil Beach stars Saoirse Ronan and Billy Howell, and it's sort of a romance, uh, maybe a failed romance and uh, it has something to say about England in the 1960s going into the 70s. But first we'll hear from Kari Rabbi and Randall Goodfellow and then we'll hear uh, about uh, On Chesil Beach. Oh my goodness, what a question. <laughs> I saw this movie recently. It's called The Midwife. It's a French movie. And uh, I saw it on Air Canada. Like, I usually don't like flying Air Canada, but its saving grace is that it has Franco cinema. And so the Franco cinema, like, as soon as I get on the airplane, I put it on and I'm just like, I'm just watching as many movies as I can because they're always really great. So, yeah, this movie, um, I think it came out in 2017, and it's a drama about between a, a, a friendship between this woman who's a midwife and the and her estranged stepmother. And um, the stepmother is sort of one of these women, she gambles, she smokes, she just eats bad food where this midwife lives her life really strictly. And they sort of come together because the stepmother, her health is failing, and this is and and the midwife is sort of the only person she sort of can rely on to help take care of her as she she grows sick. And um, it's just about how they interact, and the stepmother helps helps the midwife sort of 
live life a little bit more and just have more joie de vivre and, and just like get out there and enjoy her life more. And it was just, it was one of the best movies I've ever seen. It was fabulous. So I really enjoyed that one. Another movie that's had a big impact. Mm, I'm not sure, but one of my favorite directors is Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> and I know his movies are a little bit odd. So I, I sort of grew up watching his movies, but I appreciate his movies more through, I guess, an artistic perspective and the long, slow shots, the moments of silence. I just think it's it's so impactful and really gets you thinking about a number of issues. So I guess one of the ones that stands out to me maybe is Full Metal, Metal Jacket, and um, which looks at... Uh, the military and soldiers and the impact of war and how that impacts psychology. And I, um, yeah, I guess maybe those, his movies impacted me because I saw them early on. Like I saw them as a, a teenager and it just got me thinking um, at a deeper level. Well, you've asked about pilgrimage and a movie that I would recommend people watch if they want to get a perspective uh, pilgrimage is The Way mm-hmm. uh, and that's the one that uh, Emilio Estevez uh, did with his father uh, uh, Tom Sheen um, uh, starred in it uh, along with a number of other actors I guess it was a cameo by, uh, by Emilio in the very early part of it mm-hmm. um, well, a little bit more than a cameo but it was a minor part uh, even though the rest of the movie was based upon the response to him appearing in the movie. Yeah. Uh, it gives you an idea of the transformation people may go through. It gives you what happens on the uh, Camino. Now, interestingly, there's not a walk connect to that. Uh, uh, one of the people who um, did the photography on that is, is from Ottawa originally and comes back and visits his parents now and again. Um, he also did some cameos within that. He said that filming of that movie over the month, well, along in that the movie, uh, filming went on, but the month actually on the Camino uh, really affected him as well. And um, he uh, he appeared in the movie. If anybody watches it, it's a big guy with the with the long red hair that's sort of all over the place that plays the sitar in one of the scenes uh, about three quarters of the way through the movie there. So. And on Chesil Beach is a novel that, well, not a, it was based on a novel by Ian McEwan, and I think Ian McEwan wrote the screenplay for this movie. And it takes place originally in the, sort of the, I think the early 1960s. And it stars Saoirse Ronan, who's done a lot of high-profile movies lately. And it's also this actor, Billy Howell, who's probably not as well-known to... North American audience, maybe. This is a kind of a BBC Films production, and it's sort of taking place on their honeymoon night, and it's a story of how um, things kind of go wrong on their honeymoon night, and they kind of uh, question, and you have to excuse, there's a little bit of noise outside, there's some construction going on, but they kind of question certain things about sexuality and the marriage, but it starts off, it's kind of a bit innocent, a uh, little bit interesting, and then it's flashing back and we learn more about uh, both the characters. They're they're probably in their early 20s or so, maybe something like that in the movie. 
they're young anyway I think he might be a little bit older than her maybe but they kind of meet at I think uh, something that they do at uh, a university is it uh, maybe Oxford or something part of the one of them and uh, it kind of flashes back we see the family it's sort of showing you a little bit of uh, slice of life of that time in England where maybe morals are shifting a little bit where there's this balance between more freedom of expression and maybe traditionalism and the parents are almost a little bit traditional and maybe there's some subtext with the parents as well but uh, we learn about his family her family a bit and then it kind of is going back and forward and then it's taking place over this one kind of evening where they're at a hotel and I suppose the Chisel Beach is the beach near the hotel and uh, Ian McEwen wrote the novel Atonement which was made into a kind of famous movie which also had Saoirse Ronan in it and I had seen that movie not too long ago again and I think that's some more probably I don't know maybe it's a bit of a bigger scale to it that movie because it takes place during the Second World War and there's more of a I don't know it grapples with maybe bigger themes this one might be a little more intimate um, it's sort of slow moving I would say at first and then it builds up to this big confrontation which is very quite well done but it does take a while it feels a little meandering until we get to this point and then it's kind of after that point things kind of it's sort of a bit fragmented again and then we even go forward in time at the end which is a little bit I don't know if jarring but uh, I suppose it's interesting it's a small it's not gonna get a wide release I don't think it really did um, it's a small intimate movie uh, it really it's about this character played by Billy Howell and that's about the Saoirse Ronan character and I think he kinda does a good job in the movie we kind of in some way sympathize with him and uh, we I don't know if we relate but it's sort of like um, there's engendering a little bit of sympathy and there's a little bit of sadness at the end of like a what if kind of thing what if things had worked out differently and so that's the movie on Chesil Beach for uh, quite a long time probably going back to at least 2010 I've been quite interested in environmental sustainability and how to make a city more sustainable and I used to be members of groups like Permaculture Ottawa, Transition Ottawa, and the Ottawa Biosphere EcoCity. Uh, in the Voices on Ottawa part of this podcast, we heard from uh, Jim Birch of the Ottawa Biosphere EcoCity. But through the Ottawa Biosphere EcoCity, I also got to know someone named uh, Lauren Fulton. And Lauren was the blogger at Vegetable Visions. I just checked that blog, and apparently it's down, or maybe it no longer exists. But I did cut, I wanted to include Lauren in the podcast because she's a young person that's very well spoken and working on issues related to sustainability. Lauren's going to talk about her interest in environmental sustainability and a little bit about her story for about five minutes. And even if the website uh, is no longer accessible, I think there's something relevant in this. And so here's some uh, little thoughts from Lauren Fulton. So a bit about me is I went to, I lived, at, I lived in the country, graduated, went off to university as, you know, 17, 18 year old that didn't really know 
what I was going to be focusing on, but knew that I was passionate about environmental sustainability. Studied for four years, graduated, and basically just put myself full, full on forward into a bunch of different environmental programs and um, community building activities. I started creating a blog called City Subsistence in 2013 and it was kind of a creative outlook for me. It was a place to express my ideas on environmental sustainability, different initiatives I was doing. I was doing a lot of vegetable gardening and that's still my focus today. And then that blog, because no one could really remember how to spell city subsistence, I switched the focus to a website called uh, vegetablevisions.com and I just share you know tips and tricks on how to grow your own vegetables, how to grow food in the city, as well I like to travel and I like to have fun so I'll post pieces on you know tips to know if you're traveling to Bermuda or um, as well as food. I'm a big foodie so you can't only just grow the food, you have to know how to cook it, how to prepare it. And a big part of all of this is focused on food security. I think people more recently have lost their connection with the land and with food. And this is kind of a creative, fun way to get people connected and to share information and resources on a holistic vision of bringing food and people together. I think a big part of it was I grew up in the country in a town that I'm sure nobody listening to this has ever heard of. <laughs> it's called Mount Albert. We're known for growing potatoes and having one elementary school. And I had a forest in my backyard and I just spent every day in nature, loving nature, running around in my bare feet. And then slowly I started seeing the farmlands. I had a wetland in my backyard. It wasn't mine, obviously. It was, um, I only had three acres. <clears throat> but I saw this wetland where there was blue herons and snakes and just moles and all sorts of wildlife enjoying themselves. I saw it get turned into capital-intensive um, crops that was producing corn for cattle and then just slowly you know I see more areas turn into plazas and I think that's one of the reasons why when I went to university I chose to take development studies and then I have a joint major in environmental studies as well so I kind of combine those two issues. Because sustainability is such a buzzword a lot of people you know don't even really know what it means. So when I was in school, I was, for international development studies, I was focusing on the social aspect of community building. So how um, different case studies around the world, how they empower their local community members and give them the tools and the information and the skills to address an issue in their society. 
if you're asking me for specific case studies, this was like five years ago. I don't, <laughs> I can't remember I don't know that. Specific, maybe something yeah. you, what you focused on. Or... <clears throat> yeah, and then so within that, another side was I focused, as I said, on on food security. So I learned about different styles of agriculture production. So I learned about the capital intensive farming practices versus more sustainable permaculture practices. It's so interrelated and it's all like holistic in my mind because then the development plays a part in how the farmers are supported on those capital intensive farms or how the farmers are supported on those permaculture farms. I did like another project I did, it was more practical, but the project I did in that course was you you reach out to local organizations and you ask them what issue they have or what challenges challenges they're having and then how you can help them um, gain research and almost come up with a solution to that challenge. So I connected with the on-campus social enterprise called the Season Spoon Cafe and I asked them what's an issue they're experiencing and they said because the growing season is limited, they need more support in creating greenhouses to prolong their food production. So I worked with them on just gathering information from the community to see what they thought about this project, what different partnerships might be developed around this, what um, information is needed to build the greenhouse, but also even down to what species of plants the cafe wants to grow and what plants can be grown in the winter in a greenhouse. Another subject of interest of mine is travel. And I did a solo show on my trip to England and the Netherlands, but for time I won't uh, include that here. I'd like to include more stories from guests. So I'm going to actually include uh, three travel stories from uh, an episode which was recent, which was unique travel experiences. I've been asking the guests to describe a unique travel experience, and I've got three of them here. We've got uh, Amber Westfall of the Wild Garden, which is uh, trying to reconnect people and plants. I've got Daniel Four, who I kind of branched out of the Ottawa area with because he was doing a workshop. He's from the United States, and he's the man behind the website Ancestral Medicine. And I've also got Stuart McIsaac. Stuart's been a friend of mine since maybe 2012, maybe 2013. He used to lead a curtain. I think he still does. I used to go regularly. Got to know him and his family. And we shared some experiences of teaching English in China more around the same time in the city of Guangzhou. And uh, Stuart talks about that in the interview. But here Stuart's going to talk more about a travel experience in England. So that's Amber Westfall, Daniel Four, and Stuart McIsaac talking about unique travel experiences. How about London, London, England? Two thousand and I think it was in the year two thousand, December, Christmas time. Traveled to London. It 
wandered the streets of London, ended up uh, Christmas Eve in St. Paul's Cathedral, Anglican Cathedral, St. Paul's, and uh, was so impressed by the acoustics, the gathering of these people, and the singing, the choir, that I, I don't know, it was just, again, the sacred sound, the sacred sound that I seem to be uh, involved with, whether it's you know from an early childhood singing in the church choir or you know, chanting in a or listening to chanting in the Tibetan monastery or standing in you know St. Paul's Cathedral on Christmas Eve and listening to the, the chanting, the singing there. That was very, a very memorable experience. And then wandering around London, just, uh, the London streets, and uh, th that was a, a very memorable travel experience. Yeah, three weeks in London. Uh, Amber Westfall, and my story is, well, it goes back nearly 18 years ago when I was traveling in India, and I was there with a professor of mine from university and a group of students. I was, uh, my, my major in university was religious studies, and one of my professors organized a three-month study trip abroad to India, the land of living religious traditions. And, and that was the focus of the trip, to study the living traditions, the living religious traditions of India. We traveled all over the north and the south, and we um, experienced and, and learned about Hinduism and Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, uh, but there was one particular story that really stands out for me. And we were in Dharamsala, which is the residence of the Dalai Lama. And it's in the foothills of the Himalayas. And we were there um, for, I think, just a, a little under two weeks, maybe. And there was a, a wonderful library in the town. And I was returning back to my guest house from... Uh, trip to the library and you're in the foothills of, of the Himalayas so it's it's quite steep and you're um, you know climbing up uh, many stairs and, and pathways and and as I was climbing um, there was it was it was literally like a, a hole in in the side of the mountain a, a little bit of a cave and this elderly man came out, there was a, a rock ledge, and, and he came out and he waved at me. He waved me to come over. And I, I went over and he invited me into his little cave and he proceeded to make some chai tea and he had some biscuits. And we had a conversation, but it was... It was interesting because I, I learned from him that he had taken a vow of silence. So the conversation that we had didn't involve 
speaking, at least not on his part. Uh, and, you know, I didn't understand his language and he only had a, a very, very little bit of, of English. But he had this small chalkboard with him that he would write, you know, one or, or two words. So so we had tea and, and biscuits together and proceeded to have this uh, incredible, fascinating conversation um, with lots of hand gestures and and a little bit of writing on, on his chalkboard. But I, I learned from him that that he was he was a uh, he was a spiritual person that had taken a vow of silence and that he and some other members of his order were planning on going to and, you know, I, I'm not sure that I fully understood everything, but from from what I gathered, they were they were going to go to a cave behind a, a waterfall and and meditate there in silence. Uh, so, you know, he told me a little bit about himself and, and who he was and, and what he was up to. Um, and then he he lent me some some books, uh, which were were written by Osho. And he also gave me my mantra, uh, which, of course, I still remember to this day and, and I will sometimes use when when I meditate. So I'll never forget that that story of um, meeting this this little holy man who who lived in the in the side of a mountain who invited me in for tea and and we had this um, you know what turned out to be a, a fairly detailed conversation but we, neither of us understood each other's language really and uh, and he had taken a vow of silence. So my name is Dr. Daniel Four and to share a unique travel experience last year I had the opportunity to visit again, a sacred mountain in the San Francisco Bay Area of California, Mount Umanum. And the, what was so special about this trip is to see the way that the summit of this mountain has been restored from its former state of being desecrated as a Air Force base and how that restoration has occurred with partnership with Ohlone people and other indigenous people of the San Francisco Bay Area. And to see how the ritual work that myself and others were participating in in that area in 2009 with the mountain spirits uh, dovetailed in or made a, um, you know, was a, one very modest element in this overall story of the restoration of the sacred mountain and how the spirits of that land seemed and seem to be speaking through the living people and through the agencies that are actually being responsive, mid-peninsula open space. And they have created as part of their restored summit, a ceremonial space. And so to see a public access mountain in the United States include very explicit partnership with native people, and a designated ceremonial space was very heartwarming to me and a note of encouragement in otherwise challenging times right now, especially in the United States. And it helped me to honor the part of me that's still with and lives with the land in the Bay Area after 11 years of of living there, to be able to visit with a Ohlone and friend 
and to just pay respects to the mountain spirit was uh, is moving and nurturing and and just it's good to celebrate what's working so that to me feels like a recent example of a trip that included really contacting something that's working in a in a good way and so that was just a little uh, retrospective of the first year of uh, further reflections hopefully you found some value in it and maybe you can go back and check the archive for other episodes of interest I'm going to leave you on a different, a new note. I'm going to leave you with some new material just to whet your appetite. Uh, further Reflections will be taking a break until the new year where I'm going to kind of rebrand the podcast. I'm going to make it more of a mix of interviews and maybe one podcast a month with a mix of interviews and some personal stories. And also I'll continue to talk about the movies and maybe travel and other things. I'd like to talk about some of my experiences teaching English in China, teaching English in Poland, Morocco, my travels to Peru, and hopefully you'll hear some of that in the new year. Um, I'm going to leave you with uh, a, a series of book reviews. It's what I call the religious trilogy, but probably it doesn't really, isn't really the actual reference to those things. but. I was at the Ottawa Public Library and I saw on the shelf a book about Muhammad, which was a fictitious account of uh, the life of Muhammad by Deepak Chopra. And I thought it would be interesting because I was interested in Islam, especially since I interviewed uh, Sebastian Bacharach, who talked about the influence of Islam on his life. And I read this book about Muhammad and I have some critiques of it, but it got me uh, interested to read. He did, Deepak Chopra did two other books, one about Jesus in his kind of missing years where he was uh, showing potential to be the uh, I don't know the healer or to be the archetype of uh, the savior and then uh, also I read the book Buddha which was also interesting it, I feel like I've learned something these are fictitious accounts so there could be some critiques about uh, the accuracy and stuff but uh, I thought they were interesting uh, combination and a few maybe a month ago I recorded my thoughts on those books for use in a future podcast and so you'll hear that here on further reflections so i'd like to thank uh, all the guests i've had on this podcast for making it a memorable first year of further reflections and um, until the new year this is mark a and we'll catch you next time this is mark a and i'd like to talk about a few books that i've read recently and uh all these books are by Deepak Chopra, and it was kind of random that I read these books. I was uh, sort of thinking, actually it was kind of a synchronicity in a way. I uh, work at a local public library, and uh, I was thinking about, I'd read something about the Prophet Muhammad uh, receiving his first uh, message from the angel when he was 40 years old in the cave. And I was thinking about that because I'm approaching 40, well, in a few years maybe. And I like to think about 40 as being some kind of um, significant age. And uh, I'd been thinking about that for a while. And I think I'd been interested in more in Islam since I'd interviewed uh, Sebastian Bacharach for the podcast on Islamic design. And so I just randomly happened upon, in the fiction section, a book called Muhammad by Deepak Chopra. And I'd obviously heard of Deepak Chopra before. He's a very famous uh, 
author. I'd read one of his books uh, a few years back, uh, The Path to Love, but I do think maybe some of the things he says might be a little too, I don't know if too new agey, but I never quite got too into uh, Deepak Chopra, but I th thought maybe this book would be uh, interesting. It was a fictitious account of uh, part of the life of Prophet Muhammad, so I checked this book out, and I read the book, and then I noticed from looking at the book that he'd written, previous to this book, he'd written two other books, one about Jesus and one about the Buddha. And this is, I suppose, part of a trilogy. There might even be more now, I'm not sure. But um, I think the Muhammad book was, yeah, the most recent one. And so I started by reading the Muhammad book. And um, probably, actually, the Muhammad book was probably the least interesting of the three books and I've read all three of them now and it's sort of telling the story of it flashes to different points in Muhammad's life but uh, it's sort of telling it from the perspective of people that either encountered Muhammad or uh, maybe were members of some of his uh, family members or other relatives or adopted children or something like this but also um, it tells from some of the just the common people that had some run-in with Muhammad and then later it sort of talks about some of his enemies and maybe their perspective and it's kind of when Islam is spreading later in Muhammad's life and it's it's interesting choice to do that I'm not sure if it's maybe stylistically he chooses to do that because maybe he doesn't want to cause some kind of um, controversy with interpreting things that Muhammad did so it t takes a distance and one of the things that he does in after having read all three books is to show you um, there's these signs that the people Muhammad Jesus and the Buddha would become uh, something greater than they are there's uh, always like a like a, a fortune teller or someone some wise uh, person in each of these books or some religious uh, person or something that um, basically sees the gift in these people and that happens when somewhere near the beginning of the book there's the young Muhammad of maybe six years old and there's a story where he's taken to this camp and they're, they're going across the desert and they stop at this guy's uh, kind of, um, I don't know, uh, little uh, shack or wherever he lives and then there's this kind of omen that someone great was going to be coming and he thinks it's this uh, traitor who's kind of the adopted kind of father of I think or something like that the adopted parent of Muhammad but then uh, he realizes it's the six-year-old boy so there is this kind of uh, premonition although from what I understood about Muhammad uh, he didn't uh, I don't know, he didn't think of himself as any great spiritual person. Maybe he thought of himself as just the average person. And I don't know if the book tries to portray that. Uh, it sort of does. Um, the interesting part about the book, and maybe the thing I don't necessarily like about that book, is the way they tell the story, but also the fact that when you see Muhammad before he becomes kind of the the prophet, I guess, or before he become he founds the I guess before Islam is popularized and 
uh, it's kind of telling it from the perspective of his family and close friends and things like that. But then when he gets to be a very powerful man and uh, revered and stuff, then it sort of reverts to people distant from him. And I think you don't get this much of a sense of him as a man in that point. And I think it's because there was some controversy in his uh, later life in terms of like his, I don't know, they kind of gloss over that he, his marriages, he had several wives after his beloved died. And then uh, also the, uh, this incident where there was this message to maybe kill the Jews and they kind of, I don't know, gloss over it, but it's sort of viewed in a, I don't know, a sort of distant way in a way, maybe absolving blame from Muhammad. I mean, it's probably stylistically a choice, but it, it's not the most engaging story in a way. But I read the Jesus book after that, and uh, it was more of an engaging story. It's telling it from the perspective of, of mostly from the perspective of Jesus, although it's kind of a story that's being recounted by someone and at near the end of the book you kind of um, I guess Jesus told his story to this person and then uh, towards the end of the book you realize you kind of meet the person at the beginning of the book but then you realize how he got to that person and this is a kind of uh, I don't know if a teacher but someone that's been expecting Jesus for a long time and the story kind of talks about Jesus in the missing years which was you know they kind of know a bit about him when he was young but then from maybe his 20s to when he I think he was in 30 or so when he started his ministry if you want to use that word and then so it's kind of talking about the missing years of Jesus it's an interesting story Jesus is kind of a, a bit of a wanderer he's going kind of from place to place and he gets caught up in these different uh, sects these different kind of uh, splinter cells of uh, I guess Judaism and they're being suppressed by the Romans at that time, and they're meeting in secret and things like that. And Jesus gets it's the main, a lot of the main story, not not all of it, but a lot of it is how he met uh, Judas and Mary Magdalene, and they formed a kind of trio, and they kind of went across on this voyage of almost self-discovery, and uh, and how maybe the seeds were set at the end of Judas maybe betraying Jesus, but. They were very close for a while, and uh, then Jesus kind of had to, I don't know, he started, I guess in that way there's also this premonition that Jesus was something more than himself, but they could see it in him. They felt his presence, as they say at one point, I think, uh, maybe in the book, but um, Jesus is kind of, uh, there's this thing where he runs into a burning house and uh, saves the family, and he's not harmed, and things like this, and then he's kind of um i don't know he's learning to harness certain abilities that uh, normal people wouldn't have and then he becomes kind of revered at some point um uh, within the span of like 20 to 26 or so but then jesus kind of has, has this crisis of faith i suppose you call it and he goes on a voyage of uh, self-discovery and it's not quite clear where he ends up, but he leaves the Holy Land, I think, and he goes maybe on this caravan route, maybe maybe through Syria, I'm not sure, but he goes to some kind of mountain range, um, a distant mountain range, and that's where he meets this mysterious character that kind of opens and 
near nearly closes the book. Um, it is an, an interesting story for sure. It's something different. They talk a little bit about the book about Jesus as maybe being a bit like the Buddha and that he was preaching that you could become like him too. And some, I think he says some Christians might get upset with this message, but Jesus was a mystic and uh, he wanted people to follow his example and they could become enlightened too. And then there's the Buddha. And the Buddha is something I was more, maybe because he's telling the whole the story of different parts of Buddha's life when he was a prince, when he was a monk, and then when he was Buddha. But it really only talks about the first uh, maybe 35 years of Buddha's life. And once he's become Buddha, they don't really touch upon the last 45 years when he goes on his pilgrimage. But quite a lot of the book is when he was a prince. And of course, there were these premonitions that he would become something of a world-changing agent but uh, he might not be the kind of he's the son of the king I guess or and then he basically they say uh, maybe he would not be this great ruler but he would be a ruler of the world and uh, the king tries everything to uh, make him this uh, he sort of doesn't shows a lot of apathy at first for being a great ruler and the king kind of lavishes him a lot and um, kind of cuts him off from the outside world but bits of pieces of the outside world get in and there's these people that are supposed to be his disciples later but they one of them's quite uh, an evil kind of character and uh, he's kind of the antagonist of Buddha and then eventually it's talking about this Buddha's maybe first love who is not his wife but then once uh, that story kind of unravels, then Buddha goes to this, uh, at some point he goes to this village and it's uh, a lot of poverty there and lepers and people, dead bodies and stuff. And then it's like one of his sort of turning points in his life. And then we kind of flash forward to him being a monk and undergoing rigorous uh, a quest, but he he's uh, fat like... Uh, depriving himself of food and he wants to just rid himself of all material desires and things like this and he's meeting other people but he's very kind of hardcore if we want to use that word and I think this is based on some truth of what happened to Buddha but it's interesting that uh, he almost dies I guess and then he's kind of brought back by this young girl and she reminds him of his lost love and then he sort of uh, that kind of tip some of the edge almost to I don't know to have this moment under the tree where he does become enlightened and then it kind of talks about the Buddha him being the Buddha and he has these kind of special abilities he can kind of uh, I don't know if stop time but he can you know he, it's almost like a what you think of it as like a some kind of eastern mystic Shaolin or something from Chinese martial arts film or something where he he can't be killed almost he, they try to harm him with the sword and he keeps being one pace ahead of them and he's always like he, he goes into these battles and he kind of stops the battle and they all end up kind of revering him and, and it's kind of like a little bit like there's parallels between the Muhammad story and the other uh, Jesus story in a way that he once he taps into his abilities then he he's very revered and people can't 
help but be in, entranced by him and he has a lot of power although then it tells you you know he gets a lot of disciples and things like this but uh it's they're interesting stories and one of the messages i think about the buddha was that uh, anyone could maybe uh we have the seeds of enlightenment in us and anyone could access that it's just a matter of uh opening the i don't know if you want opening the door but it's a matter of tapping into that and i'm I don't know if I have issues maybe with that in some degree, but that's, I guess, not the main focus of the book. But they're an interesting trilogy for sure. And uh, I hope you check out one of those books, and uh, or all three. There, that's uh, Muhammad, Jesus, and the Buddha by Deepak Chopra. This is Mark A. of Further Reflections. Well, that does it for another episode. Just a reminder, the website for this podcast is furtherreflections.net. There you can find the episode archive. You can find more about myself. You can support the podcast. And you can see the archive of my previous podcast, Reflections On. Thanks for listening.